Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Jose Marie Griffiths, President of Dakota State University, as our guest. Well, President Griffiths, it's a pleasure to have you here today on the Plexus Presidential Podcast. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Look forward to our conversation. Well, and I'll tell you, you know, we uh, we are, we already had a, a chance to talk about some some common ground that we had as far mm-hmm. as UNC Chapel Hill and UT yeah. Knoxville, which is actually about an hour and a half physically from where I live right now. Yeah. Um, so I really look forward to diving into your experience and a lot more. Okay. Um, so a, a great place that I always like to start is I like to start with with you and the mentors that really helped shape your path to the presidency. Mm, interesting. I was I, I to go back to that. I think my my early mentors were uh, you know my under I had an undergraduate mentor who was my tutor. We had tutors in England, and we had a an academic tutor and a personal tutor. And it was my personal tutor that I've developed a sort of lifelong relationship with Dr. Tegard Wynne Jones of the physics department at UCL in London. So he was really the first. The second person, my doctoral advisor, very, very influential, Bertie Brooks at UCL also, very, very influential. He and his wife used to host a lot of visitors from around the world who would come through London and visit University College London. And through him and through his wife, I met a lot of very, very different people. And then I've had various mentors since then, since coming to this country. Um, But I think probably one of the most influential was Jim Dudestat. Um, He hired me to the University of Michigan when he was president. But by the time I arrived there, three months after I accepted the uh, position, he was no longer the president. But he was, um, and uh, eventually um, Lee Bollinger, who who went to Columbia, became president. And I had a good relationship with Lee, but, but... Jim was always very, very good at giving me a sense of whether I was, my feet were on the ground or not on the ground. You know, he would keep me grounded and he would give me uh, ideas and suggestions to keep me uh, moving forward. So um, so both two university presidents in that mix. Um, but interestingly, that was never really the, uh, the plan. <laughs> so for you, was it, was it an easy, was it a tough transition from the UK to the United States? Um, well, I was very excited at the transition because I was encouraged by um, people in the United States, my mentors. Interestingly enough, my mentors nearly all were men because I was in physics and computer science and information science. So, you know, mostly men. Um, but I was encouraged to come to the United States because the research resources were much more significant than they were in the UK at that time. The European Union hadn't started its major funding for research programs. And so the United States was where it was all happening. And so I came over initially to UC Berkeley as a visiting professor and was um, was solicited by a number of different universities to go there and eventually went to work in Washington, D.C., not at a university, but for a company that was doing some really interesting um, database metadata and, and related IT research. And I went to Washington DC to do that instead. The transition, a little bit different. Um, everything's available in the United States. Just about everything was available 24 seven, very different from the UK where you know the shop shut down at six o'clock in the evening, except on Thursdays when you had late night shopping. Um, the size and scope of the United States, very, very different from the UK. Um, I did miss, the um, the sense of historical place in the UK, 
which you don't quite have in the United States. I mean, you can get there a little bit if you go to Philadelphia or somewhere like that, but it's not quite the same. Everything is relatively new here. And um, But uh, I didn't go back to the UK. I came to do research, and I did research most of my career. And so you have a, you have a, a, a strong background when it comes to, I mean, I can go down the list, but let's start with science and physics and, and IT. Where did you know that, or, or when was that moment when you knew you loved science, the, you know, STEM? Oh, I, I <laughs> loved science from the moment I read the story of Marie Curie. She's a sort of hidden mentor for me. Um, you know, I have a picture of her on my uh, bookshelf here. Um, the uh, faculty and staff, when I had my uh, sort of inaugural session here at the university, gave me a Marie Curie bobblehead complete with a glow-in-the-dark uh, test tube with uh, naturally radium in it. Um, no, uh, I always felt that research was my calling, and I was fascinated with the idea that you could get to know something that nobody else in the world knew at the moment that you discover it, whatever it is, and that's new. And that that's so such a great feeling. And then, of course, you share it through publication. And then you look for the next thing that you can discover or find out or develop that nobody else knows about. And to me, that was what really led me into a career in research. So I, I had an interesting conversation with an administrator at, at, at a university, and he was talking about the challenge around nomenclature. You know, so the challenge around you know, an, an, an end job or position and students really not understanding, well, what pathway do I need to take to get this job? And so, you know, a question for you is, you know, whether it be around physics or science or STEM, how do you make sure that you're encouraging the next generation to understand, hey, here's what this can become for you? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question because they, we tend to see things evolve in silos and then within silos people have their own shorthand and language right we have you know the scientists will speak in shorthand and business people will speak in their shorthand and so on I think um, for me the important thing is what is it that I know what is it that I know how to do and then to understand the broader context I think that's always been something I've had sort of a broader understanding of how the work that I have done or I'm doing can tie in with other areas and so if you look at my, my career, it was not a straight line and it was very zigzaggy, but it wasn't little zigs and zags. They were huge zigs and zags into other areas because I had some knowledge. I felt it could be applied in other areas and I had developed certain skills that I could take with me. Um, so I always encourage students, particularly doctoral students, but I encourage all students to try and step back and understand what they're doing in, in their uh, educational programs and how it might relate to other areas. So I'm a great fan of interdisciplinary programs, this interdisciplinarity, getting out of the box that you're in and meeting people in other boxes because it opens, it opens horizons for you. It opens new pathways that you might not realize had existed. And the real way that would have shown would be the kinds of um, when I was out, you know, job hunting, um, as a recent graduate and then job hunting as a, as a new doctoral, doctoral graduate, um, I applied for all sorts of positions 
that I thought might have a relationship. Because sometimes when I was brought in, I had to sort of then, you know, back that up with an idea. Well, this is how I think it relates, um, because people sometimes are a little bit, you know, looking at me a little bit carefully. But I think that's what makes the world very, very exciting. And I tend at this stage of my career to sort of, you know, not to overemphasize that skill, but I, I usually can link things together. And that's a very useful skill, not just in determining my own pathways and helping other people find their pathways, but in helping to develop partnerships with other kinds of entities in other sectors of society. And uh, I think that uh, here, here at Dakota State and the other places I've been, we've been able to build some really interesting new kinds of partnerships. Now, did you plan on being a president? Oh, no way. <laughs> People started nominating me for presidency. Gosh, I think it was way back in about 1999, 2000. And I said, no, um, I, I did not think I had the qualifications to be a president. Um, you know, I was a researcher. I'd, I'd already had my arm twisted to be a dean. And that was an administrative role I really wasn't looking for. But um, as I, as I, no, no, I'm, I'm wrong. The date must have been actually, oh, 1996, I went to Michigan. So it was before that. So probably 1990, people started nominating me and I wasn't ready. I was young. I was a good researcher. I could communicate well. People like to listen to me because I have a different accent. Oh, another, another benefit of having an accent, you know. Um, uh, and um, I think that I just, it just wasn't in my horizon. But the more I became involved in research, research administration, then IT, I was persuaded to come in and be a vice chancellor for computing and telecommunications. I think more because I could explain things about technology to different groups. I knew enough to talk to the technology personnel. I knew enough to talk to high level um, officials at the university about what we needed to do and why. And it was that that communications ability that really took me down the administrative path. And I always tried to keep one foot into research somehow, either helping people develop new research programs, helping with the proposal development, maintaining relationships with the funding agencies, encouraging undergraduate research, always to try and have that piece. Because I almost feel as though my real academic home and my, my academic heart is in research. And now you you also um, have have taught as well, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I do in, enjoy teaching. Yes. In your role as president, are you able to teach? Not whole courses anymore. Um, neither when I was a provost nor as a president. Um, but I can do class sessions. Um, you know, participate. We have an honors course in artificial intelligence, and I teach one or two sessions when I can. Um, I just enjoy being with the students and interacting with them. And that's a slightly more formal way of doing it than just bumping into them uh, as I'm walking across campus. Well, and let's talk about that. Let's talk about the, the intimate size of your, your institution. You know, yeah. you have roughly 3,200 students. Now, does, does I, I would imagine it's an advantage for you and for staff members and students. You really get to know each other pretty well. You know, you're not an institution that has 40,000, 50,000 students, which have their place. There's nothing wrong with that. But it, I would imagine it's a lot easier to get to know and, and really help support students and parents for that matter. Yes, exactly. You get to know them because you, you see them at various events. You bump into them walking around. 
Um, you get to know them uh, in inside the university and 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 outside the university. It's um, it's much much more of an extended family, and it it's easier than uh, coming into a presidency to start learning about the interests and uh, uh, you know aspirations of faculty, students, and staff as you come in, and then it's easier to start seeing opportunities and trying to identify the resources that are going to be needed for them to to actually achieve those aspirations. So it's, you know, and I always joke at the University of Michigan, it took me three months to organize a meeting of the deans. And by the time I'd organized the next one, we'd have two new deans out of the 16. I mean, so it was constant. Here, I can just pick up the phone. We probably have two deans, three deans, four deans in my office uh, by the end of the day. Much, much easier uh, to deal with. We also are sort of fairly consolidated on our campus. So we don't really have multiple campuses to, to run to. Um, we do have that classic university problem, parking. Everybody complains about parking, but we certainly don't have the parking problems of large institutions. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would imagine. So let's talk a little bit about <clears throat> Dakota State and, and um, you know, how are you, how are you building relationships in the local community and also the business community today? Yep, yep, that's a good question. Um, actually, when I arrived here, I think we had, um, there was always already a very, very solid town-gown relationship. Um, basically, um, I, I joined a number of the, uh, the local groups, the, uh, the philanthropic groups. I joined the uh, local economic development um, board. Um, so I started to meet people that way. And in a small community like Madison, South Dakota, you, if you go to, you know, you go to two or three meetings and you've met some of the key people. Um, but then I developed a, a vision um, by talking with people on and off campus. Uh, we developed an in internal vision, which I then projected out and went out and started to talk about. Once we'd had, had all sorts of head nods within the institution that this is the way we're going, I could go and promote that outside. And, um, you know, developing a common, uh, a sort of compelling mission is a, is a classic leadership skill. And people liked what we were saying. I, I don't really fully understood the implications yet, but they liked the fact that we were talking about expanding our, our influence using the capabilities we had, particularly in the application of our um, uh, knowledge expertise and our research expertise to the outside world. So we, we developed, um, one of the early ideas was that we developed a, uh, a, a lab facility or a lab organization, a research organization within the university. And we talked about building the Madison Cyber Labs. We were at the process of thinking about a rebranding for the university. And I wanted to brand the city of Madison as well, small, small city, 7,200 people. And um, so we called it the Madison Cyber Labs. And then I joked, you know, if we were ever listed on the stock exchange, we'd be the Mad Labs. And I'll tell you, that stuck. People love this concept of our mad scientists and technologists helping the local community. And it's it it just became something that people could could come around. But the reason why that was important, as we were very successful in bringing in external partners to fund this applied research, where people brought their problems to us, right? Local people brought their problems to us to be solved by our faculty and students. And that then led to more problems coming. Um, it was a very successful effort. But as we realized this is a real possibility, we decided we could extend our labs. And so we initiated uh, another 
program, uh, fundraising program and the development of more public-private partnerships to actually build one to three more buildings, but in Sioux Falls. Now, here I am sitting in Madison, South Dakota, small town. Sioux Falls is the largest city in the state, just over 200,000. And we have got the people of Madison supporting us to put our new building in Sioux Falls. And we have the businesses in Sioux Falls understanding that what we were really doing was talking about economic and workforce development. And they could see the value of that. So once we made it very clear, we were not abandoning Madison, we're actually strengthening Madison. Madison and DSU are the engine that's going to drive this economic development into Sioux Falls for the benefit of the state. So we have a sort of a different approach to, to what we're doing. And we talk very heavily about workforce development, uh, uh, research-based economic development, and then community development through service. Well, and I, and I love that idea because that also, from a career readiness standpoint, boy, that puts students in a position where they're ready once they graduate. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd also imagine, you know, you're, you're ensuring that students are not only career ready for that first job, but as they change jobs as well. Absolutely. They, they, they have long-term career opportunities. So one of the things we're doing with these initiatives, with our labs here, uh, we can, uh, in, our, in all our labs together, probably host about 150 researchers full-time. So not only are we having faculty and students, but we can have graduates <laughs> working on research. And the idea in Sioux Falls is we can... We're, we're planning uh, potentially over the next decade, uh, potentially three buildings, each of which could host at least 400 researchers. So we really are talking economic development. Not only are we graduating, preparing students, graduating them, but we are creating the jobs that they can take post-graduation. And um, we don't lose the graduates that come to university, to the university, to other parts of the United States. Obviously, we'll lose some. Right now, we lose a fair number. But we want to keep more of those people, more of our graduates, particularly those who are from South Dakota, in South Dakota, to uh, to contribute to the economy of the state. So, so it looks like you have roughly 60% of your students, maybe a little bit more, that are in-state mm -hmm. and the rest out of state. So that means that you're targeting students in-state, but also you have a good mix of students we do. out of state as well. So I guess one... How do you do that? How do you attract students? And how do you attract students out of state? And, and the other question I would have is, how, how big do you want to get? Or can you get? Two good questions. So in terms of attracting students, you attract students by having relevant programs, let's say career relevant in your terminology, career relevant programs. And we have the advantage of a fairly focused mission. I mean, you know, we are the computing uh, and cyber, meaning all things technology campus of the statewide regental system. So we don't have a lot of programs, for example, in the social sciences or the humanities. We have some, but we don't have a lot because our focus is on how technology plays a role in, in, in that area. So with that focus, it's a great focus because you know technology is gonna be around for a long time and it's constantly changing. And graduating students who are cyber savvy, as we call it, is very, very helpful. Um, so relevant programs is number one. The second is to have good faculty who love teaching and will engage in research with the students. Um, and on a small, in a small campus, the quality of the faculty interaction, the nature and quality of the faculty-student interaction is so much stronger and so much more immediate. 
Um, and so that's another important factor. Um, we do have about half our students are fully online, by the way. And so it's not as if we have all our students here in Madison. It helps us a little bit with growth potential. Um, but they are students, I think 57% of the fully online students are in South Dakota. So many of them are already working and, and they're working while they're going to school and they, they take our courses. Uh, we are a fairly large state like Tennessee, six hours to drive across the state. Um, so we have some who are on the other side of the Missouri River. But um, we have created a culture here. Or we've sort of nurtured a culture of innovation. And the whole idea that you can come here and you can try new things and it's okay if you fail, you can start again, um, is something that our entire uh, faculty and staff and students seem to like about Dakota State. And it fits in well with the kinds of things that we're doing. So innovation plus uh, sort of... Um, a sort of caring environment where we know if students are having problems, we know if somebody's not showing up for class three times in a row, and we can make sure that they're yeah. that kind of thing. Well, absolutely. So um, something that I'm hearing more and more, you know, as far as just the challenges of education in general is the conversation around the value, the value of education, yep. the value of a degree. Um, what, what do you say to students and, and maybe even more so parents when they ask that question? Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good question and parents should ask it. Uh, students at the, when they come in are not really interested in that, <laughs> just in, okay, what have you got? Who can I, who, who else is going here and what kinds of fun things do you have to do? Um, with parents, but basically it comes back to those um, career relevant um, academic programs. Um, so we can say, you know, in the uh, IT, computing, cybersecurity arena, there are hundreds of thousands of vacancies in the United States right now. We also are very um, careful and we work with our students almost from the day they arrive to prepare them career-wise. So during their first year here, they'll be engaged with the Career Center. They'll go to some uh, events to get to know how to meet um, adults, right? Working adults, professionals. Um, they'll get a business card that they can use. Um, I will tell them a little bit about um, how they should and shouldn't behave to get certain kinds of positions in this world. Um, and uh, basically then the other piece to that is, um, is placement, getting them jobs after they've graduated. And our placement the last several years in a row would be 97%, 98%, 99 And if we Right now for undergraduates this last year, it was 99.6. I could round that up to 100. And for graduate students, 100%. So basically what I can tell parents is if your son or daughter comes here and, you know, goes through the program and works at their, their, their you know, gets, you know, focuses on it, they will graduate in four years, four to five years, depending, and they will have a job within six months of graduation, and it'll be a job in the discipline that they've chosen to study. And consequently, um, we have a very, very low um, uh, non-payment, non-repayment on student loans. So when you can talk about hundreds of thousands of jobs available in the United States, including the fact that we have increasing numbers of jobs uh, for our graduates, um, it's, a, it's an attractive proposition. Well, absolutely. And, and how, how do you make sure that, that you make um, you make it af affordable, especially compared to competitors? 
Well, first of all, we are a state institution, so that helps against the private institutions. Um, I think just about every institution or every public institution around the state for its, you know, room and board is order of magnitude $10,000 a year. That's that's pretty typical. But uh, our state in the last few years has kept uh, tuition flat um, where they have just in the last couple of years instituted um, an additional scholarship program for need-based scholarships. Prior to that, we were competing with neighboring states that offered need-based scholarships. And so we were losing a lot of our students to institutions in neighboring states. So we've, we're sort of fighting back with a, um, a fund, a $200 million fund that is uh, uh, funded, uh, was funded both by the state and private philanthropy. So that uh, we, again, we're very much into public-private relationships um, to the extent that we can. In fact, I think that that might be the future model for research, for, for universities that we can't do it alone. We can't do it off the states alone. We've all seen public funding for higher education generally go down. Um, and while we still get a generous amount in some states, um, it's not going to be enough because the needs are just growing. Um, so the, so public-private partnerships are, I think, the way to go. So what are the top two initiatives that you're thinking about on a day-to-day -day basis? Okay, well, uh, one is... Uh, ensuring that we can uh, um, help our students be more successful. So student success is our biggest uh, priority here. And um, people report back on how they contribute to student success in various parts of the university. So that means ensuring one, that they can come, two, that when they come, they, they, they know uh, how to uh, progress through their programs. If they're having some difficulty to know where to go to get help, um, trying to ensure that they have experiences outside of the classroom, some that are relevant to the, the career options they might have by internships, um, uh, work study opportunities, um, opportunities to uh, lead clubs and participate in clubs and uh, participate in athletics so that they have a good, well-rounded experience while they're here. We also like to have our students and our students like to compete in all sorts of competitions, which is also very, very good for getting them out into the workplace. But all of these kinds of extracurricular activities are things that help build their resumes before they're ever in the marketplace for a job. And we encourage that. Some of our external partnerships are all focused around that. And in fact, I would say most of our external partnerships start with the students, start with people wanting to, uh, wanting interns, wanting to hire our students, um, and we give we we develop these uh, opportunities through career days, through specialized visits to campus to expose students to opportunities. And then typically, once we have that relationship developed, they'll start finding out a little bit more about the curricula we have and and start looking at the, the potential for um, actually bringing us problems or collaborative r and d, whichever way they want to go. so those those kinds of relationships grow, but it all starts with the students. So that's our first priority. I would say our second big initiative, we, we call it Cyber 27, is an initiative to leverage this public-private partnership that we developed last year between the state, private philanthropy, the city of Sioux Falls, and Sioux Falls Development Foundation. Um, we pulled together just over $90 million, 30 million of which is to build our capacity here in Madison, South Dakota to um, double the number of graduates from certain degree programs in cybersecurity and in artificial intelligence and computer science. So we're going to double the number of graduates there. 
In order to do that, we have to recruit and retain more faculty. So we have a big initiative to recruit more faculty. And we have um, an initiative uh, to uh, increase our marketing and communication to bring in more students. If you have more faculty, we'll bring in more students. And then we have an initiative to um, build the pipeline of students. So part of this Cyber 27, we have something that we call the Governor's Cyber Academy. For the last five years, we've been running what we call the DSU Cyber Academy, which is a high school, junior and senior dual credit program where students can take courses in the majors. Um, typically, dual credit is for those general education courses, you know, one English, one math, one science, one social science, one humanities. But we're able to go into deeper into the major curriculum and we can uh, then have students in the academy will be able to take a full year of college while they're still in high school and then come into um, a three year, basically finish off in three years or do a three plus one program to get a master's degree. Very, very popular, particularly with the job market. Um, and uh, we've it's been successful in several school districts in eastern South Dakota. Come August, we'll be launching uh, across the whole state. and so. Any any high school um, graduate has the, the qualifications for, for the college dual credit program will be able to come in, including homeschooled students. So that's that's piloting us forward. And, and in the meantime, we continue to build our research capabilities. And I should just mention, in addition to the problems people bring us, we have a major research focus on national security and defense. And so that's another opportunity for students to get work with um, the government agencies or defense contractors. We are a defense contractor ourselves. So the big opportunities there, um, but students also can go out and work in uh, businesses, nonprofits, et cetera, taking their technologies, their cyber savvy expertise out there and advocating for appropriate use of new and emerging technologies and the protection of those technologies in the workplace and, uh, and at home, by the way, um, interesting stuff. Well, and you, I mean, you just described when we talk about, you know, how do you compete? Well, you've, you've clearly, uh, you know, mentioned a number of ways of, of how the institution competes and, and, you know, and also meeting, meeting students where they are. You know, I'm hearing that, I guess you can call it a mantra, if you will, but I'm hearing that oftentimes as presidents want to meet students where they are. And, you know, the fact that you have roughly 50% of your undergraduate population taking only online programs, that's pretty astounding because you yeah. see that on the graduate side. I mean, you do see yeah. that more and more, but that ability to be able to have stackable credentials, a variety of degree programs where you truly can meet students where they are is something that's, I, I think it, it might be easy to say, but it's harder to do. And you could speak to that better than I could. Yeah. Well, as a, as a, um, a university, it's heavily focused on uh, um, these ongoing uh, technology developments. Uh, we, were, we were engaged in online early on. And that was good, and, and it stood it stood the test of time. As we became more well-known, we received um, uh, Center of Academic Excellence designations from the National Security Agency and Homeland Security in three disciplines. And there are only 10 universities in the whole United States that have all three designations. And we're one of 22 universities that even have degree programs in cyber operations, which is sort of offensive cybersecurity. As a result of that, people around the country are looking for programs in cybersecurity or computer science, and we'll find out what the, that we've got these designations. 
we're on that list of just a few. And so they'll apply. So online uh, opportunities have been great for people around, around the United States, although we still get a lot of students from all over come to campus. We have a number that are in the military and, and, and veterans, but we have a number in, in the active military that are, that are still working on degrees. We have um, what we call articulation agreements with many different other schools, but we also have an articulation agreement with the NSA. We've had that for many years so that uh, civilian and military employees of the NSA um, can count some of their technical education into our degree program and finish off online. And that's really attractive because they've already got a job. They've got, they don't want to go through uh, sort of dual, <laughs> dual <coughs> go through programs twice in a row because they've already had a lot of technical education in computer science or cybersecurity. And uh, we've, we've gone through in minute detail as to what they got in those courses, how it relates to ours, and created the articulation. The whole notion of stackable credentials is, is very, very important. And I think the, the, other, the other thing is we, we are engaged in workforce development. A, a number of people I know in higher education think workforce development is something that happens outside of universities. And we say, you know, universities will say we do teaching, research, and service. Well, we say we do teaching for workforce development. Obviously, we do some teaching because it's good to teach and it's good for people to develop knowledge, but we really are doing it so that people can develop careers. The second thing we say is they do research. Well, we do research for economic development. We do a little bit of very basic research and we have some researchers looking at origins of life in biology, etc. But most of our research is applied. And so our applied research is tied in to economic development and job creation. And then the third area, we all do service, on-campus service in the community, in our professional associations. But service is really for community development, whichever community you're developing that you're contributing through service. So we have teaching, research and service, but also in our, in our picture, we have those workforce development, economic and community development. And so how do you make sure that students, you know, stay the course and persist? Oh. That's uh, really down to um, excellent advising, um, all sorts of uh, additional uh, academic services. We have, a, we have a strong writing center. We have, uh, as do all universities, growing counseling uh, support for students. Um, we, we have these sort of, we have tutors, we have peer tutors. Um, there were opportunities for our students to get help if they're having difficulty and to improve if they're doing reasonably well. And increasingly, we see students taking advantage of those opportunities. Sometimes they go to a center, sometimes it's just working alongside with a faculty member on a research project that allows the faculty member to help guide them and, and they become mentors, just as Dr. Jones was one of my mentors as an undergraduate. But those relationships are easier to affect on a small campus. It's harder to fall between the cracks as a student in a small campus where you know everybody knows your name, and um, people look out for each other, so there's, there's there's that sense of community here among the students and among the faculty and staff. Absolutely, absolutely. And where do you see where do you where do you see Dakota State in five years? Well, um, we're now in 2023, so that will be 2028. Uh, so our Cyber 27 initiative. <laughs> was um, 
was uh, defined as a five-year initiative because we had the funding for five years. Um, so basically, we have, um, I imagine that we will be larger. You asked me uh, what I thought the, the optimum size was. I, I believe um, maybe not in five years, we'll build the capacity in five years to have the institution be in the low, low 4,000 range, 4,000, 4,100, 4,200. I think if we start getting up to 4,500, we're going to start to get to the point where we would have to have a whole new infrastructure and that would just be too much to, to deal with. Um, so I think it, uh, 4,000 4, plus or minus. Um, I think we'd like to see ourselves have formal recognition as a research university. Obviously we're doing a lot of research, but as a Carnegie Research II university, certainly within five years, um, we will be generating not only the existing revenue streams from the kinds of uh, research that we're doing, um, I would see we'd be de developing new revenue streams from the um, expansion of our, what we call our applied research lab, not our mad labs, but our applied research lab, which is for national security and defense into Sioux Falls. So that will be another source of funds that will be driven by our ability to populate the job, the jobs that we've created, either by pushing them through Dakota State and graduation, but or attracting them in from other areas because we'll be doing some kinds of research. You have to be in a certain kind of facility to work in, a secure facility. Um, I'm hoping by then we'll have our full um, new uh, athletics complex completely finished. Um, as I say, competition is important. Athletics is important. Cyber games are important and esports are important as our, mm. our students engage in all of those. I would hope that we will hold more patents. We've just had our first two patents. Um, and recognizing that we've just started this more um, organized research activity just a few years ago. We may well have a couple more spin-off companies. Um, that would be good. Uh, we think, you know, entrepreneurship is, is very important for young people in technology, not all of them, but for some. So we have a, an entrepreneurial center that's encouraging students to think of ideas for corporations and we help them through the process. And I think we hope for a greater national and, and perhaps even international recognition as a, um, as a research STEM university. And our plan really in by the end of 2027 is to make our, make DSU the top cyber university in the country, not the top cyber security. It may be that too, but we define ourselves a little bit more broadly than just cyber security, the top cyber university in the country. Um, yeah, that would be great. If we were all, if we'd like to be mentioned along with MIT, Caltech, you know, that's our aspiration, Carnegie Mellon and DSU. And we play in that sandbox. Our students are competing with students from there academically and in these uh, other areas. And we just want to move in that direction. But we have a hub of activity and innovation in the cyber world and cyber research contributing to the economy of South Dakota. That's our vision. Well, I love it. Well, you've mentioned many, many distinctive things about Dakota State. And personally, I love to hear that because I know that institutions in general, I mean, public and private institutions, the market is, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say the market's pretty saturated with post-secondary institutions. So that ability to say, how are you different and be able to really define that and expand on that is something that is really critical. And, and you have done that so eloquently today. So, you know, President Yossi Marie Griffiths, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much, Brad. And I, I extend you an invitation 
come on out and see our campus here in Madison, South Dakota. Anytime you want to come, just let us know. I would love that. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Thank you for joining the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. For more information on the series, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.